0: Velkommen til Europæiske Ideer, en podcastserie om Europas tilstand og fremtid, som det ser ud, hvis man spørger nogen af de førende tænkere på området. Den her gang der skal vi høre Ivan Krastjo, leder af Center for Liberal Strategies i Sofia, og det skal vi i en samtale med Lykke Friis, Europa-ekspert og formand for det udenrigs-politiske selskab. Podcasten er en liveoptagelse fra den internationale forfatterscene i Dronningesalen på Det Kongelige Bibliotek og udviklet i samarbejde med Samme God fornøjelse.
1: Ivan, welcome to Copenhagen. To start off, when one reads your book and one just looks upon the front page, I must admit I was quite puzzled about the title After Europe. So is this the end with Europe, what's coming afterwards?
2: I do believe that European Union, as we knew it, is not there anymore. It's not a bad news, to be honest. There is no uh, The book, because of the title, was read, is slightly more pessimistic than it is. I do believe it's an open-end story. Uh, but there is one important difference between East and West when we are looking at the European crisis, and this is why it was so important for me to bring this story. In Eastern Europe, we saw a major political system basically collapsing our, in front of our eyes. the periods in which time really jumps. Many things that look unthinkable, after six weeks you have the feeling that it was inevitable. And in Eastern Europe, if we're experts, experts on something, we're experts on fragility. From this point of view, it's very different. This is not about this is on the level of experience that you know how quickly things can change. So this is why, on the eastern part of Europe, you are going to have a different reaction based on different experiences and not simply of values and interests which normally are discussed. There was a period of time in which, in the West, there was a feeling that we know what is happening in Eastern Europe. We like it or not. And then suddenly. Many people had the feeling that exactly they don't know what is going on. Some people didn't like it, other people. But for the first time, there is a genuine interest. Because after 1989, there was a lot of sympathy, and even there was a lot of kind of a respect for what East Europeans are doing, but there was no question, there was no puzzlement. What they're doing, people are happy, they get free. We all the time were saying that we want to be a normal people living in a normal country, which in 1989 means living like in the West, or even better, in the West. Uh, So from this point of view, I do believe that suddenly, for somebody who is not visiting regularly Central and Eastern Europe, who does not have son or daughter married there and so on, uh, basically what is happening there starts to look strange. Mm. Why Central and East Europeans who are doing fine? Because if you go even on some of the economic explanation about the crisis, Eastern Europe does not fit. Listen, Poland is the best performer in Europe for the last 15 years economically. The country didn't have a recession at all. All this explanation that you can say what is going on because of the economic crisis does not work for Poland. And then people are going to say, yes, but it's about social inequality. But in the last seven or eight years, the social inequality in Poland has been reduced, not increased. Crisis creating community of fate. Suddenly, and this is good about crisis, by the way, Mm. suddenly financial crisis comes and many Germans became experts on Greek poli- economic policy. You really start to be interested in what they're doing, how they're doing this. And then came the refugee crisis, and Central Europeans started to be interested in the German refugee policies. So suddenly, we started to be interested in each other. Uh, and I do believe this is important. In Eastern Europe, there is a feeling that some of our argument was not heard. To be honest, part of it is true, but the reason it was not heard is also on our side. Uh, Because the problem with Eastern Europe is the following. During the refugee crisis, Central and East European societies were the most critical and, to be honest, quite hostile to getting uh, and receiving any refugees. And this was not going to be a huge problem if there was any refugees in the region. Mm -hmm. But there were not. So, this is physically, there were people going through the region, but there were not people in the region. Uh, to the extent, just to give you one Hungarian opinion poll, there are more people in Hungary who claim on the opinion poll that they have seen non identified flying objects than they have seen refugees. Uh, I'm saying this not ironically, because then I'm going to tell you that there is something deeper and serious about this reaction. But because of this situation in which you do not have refugees, but then basically you're so hostile, and then you have countries like Germany or Austria, which are receiving a lot of people, uh, basically, European arguments have been dismissed very easily. People cannot understand what is going on. And the explanation becomes kind of a very cultural explanation. They're like this, communist legacy, and so on and so on. And Part of my idea in this, uh, uh, in this book was trying to explain. Explain does not mean justifying. There are many things which are happening in our countries that personally I don't like. Uh, but it means that we should try to understand what is happening on the level of society, because to try to explain everything by demonizing one or another political uh, figure or government, is my view, is not understanding. Mm.
1: But your point seems to be that uh, exactly because Central and Eastern Europe had a different sort of experience with regards to the First War, World War, that actually has an impact now upon the refugee crisis, that they fear that, well, this was a time of, multi, of multiculturalism and so forth, and now this is getting back to us. Is that one of the, yeah. your points? Uh,
2: by the way, I was uh, uh, recently in Turkey, and one of their ministers said a sentence, which should be a uh, good introduction uh, to what I'm going to say. He said, you should know the World War II is over, but World War I has not finished yet. Uh, uh, And I'm saying this because in a certain way, uh, uh, we have been always focusing on the end of the World War II, but in 1918, and this is 100 years ago, something very important happened. The three continental European empires started to disintegrate. The Habsburgs, the Ottomans, and the Romanovs, Russian Empire. But this was three totally different logic of disintegration, which developed very differently in the last 100 years. The Habsburg disintegrated, and basically the uh, central uh, European nation-states came as a result of it. The Ottoman Empire went through protectorates and Mm -hmm. so on, and now we see the crisis of the post-colonial state in places like Syria. And in the uh, Russian Empire, basically the Soviet Union managed to reconsolidate territorially the, the Russian Empire. Why I'm saying this, keep in mind five things when you're trying to understand the reaction of Central European society to the migration crisis. First, unlike most of the West European society, Central European societies has a much higher level of ethnic homogeneity. They have been purged by Stalin and Hitler, and as a result of it, this society which came as a very much uh, multi-ethnic in the post-World War I period, after World War II ended as very ethnically homogeneous. This period in the interwar period, for many people, was perceived as time of trouble. And during the communist period, one of the major attempts for legitimacy of the communist governments was making ethnic homogeneity as a source of legitimacy. The second thing that happened is none of the central European country has any colonial history. We had not been there. Uh, we don't have encounters with people coming outside of Europe. In a certain way, also, there is no sense of guilt generally, basically, we believe that we are the biggest victim of history, so from this point of view, we're not going to allow anybody to compete with this. And certainly, most of the national identities of our countries has been the result of opposing some type of a universalist project. Be the Habsburgs, be the communists, be the Catholic Church. It was to be, it was in opposition. But if there is one thing that people too, which didn't understand, was the demographic dimension of it. Mm -hmm. Let's give you some figures in order to understand what I'm talking about. In the last 25 years, out of 8 million Bulgarians, almost 1.5 million left the country living somewhere in the West. We're talking about an aging society, which according to the projection, in the next 40 years is going to lose 27% of its population. When the migration crisis started, with the image of all these people coming to the borders of Europe and the idea that all these people are going to come and to stay, what happened in Central Europe was demographic panic. Suddenly, you discovered the mortality of your own national community. And I do believe this is very important because the most under discussed issue when it comes to the reaction of Central Europe to the immigration crisis is the trauma of emigration. Mm. A lot of people left. Why I'm saying this? Because, and this is now some political science data, the number of the people, the percent of the people that left certain regions is better explanation for who is going to vote for alternative to Germany than the number of the people who arrived in certain regions. This was the most depopulated regions that voted more for the alternative for Germany than the regions in which more refugees came. And this is extremely important because this was this emigration element was not part of the discussion. It is also new for central and eastern Europe. Listen, 10 years ago, for us opening of the borders was the best thing that has happened. And then suddenly the best is becoming the most threatening.
1: But Going then back to the policy implications of what you just said. Okay, so we have basically no refugees in Central and Eastern Europe. We have still a very big refugee problem in Europe. What do we do then? I mean, what are the policy implications?
2: Listen, it's interesting. There was now a lot of study being done on the rise of populist parties and others. One of the most important findings across the borders is that the cultural factor is more important than the economic factor. And this is basically, there was a a Harvard study being done all over, based on the uh, the Michigan value surveys. Uh, Why is this important? Because cultural insecurity is much more difficult to deal than with economic insecurity, because cultural insecurity basically comes from very different sources. One is demography. The other, by the way, is technology. Let's tell you, because in the book I'm claiming something that many people basically believed was slightly too much. Uh, that uh, There are many things that were uh, probably slightly too much. Uh, but uh, my major argument was that the refugee crisis was Europe's 9-11. 9-11 in the US, 3,000 people being killed in New York is a tragedy. But this is not the biggest tragedy that has happened in the world for the last 20 years on the level of people being killed and destroyed. Why it was so important? Because as a result of it... The majority of the Americans saw the world with different eyes. In terms of numbers, the refugee wave of 2015 is nothing exceptional. The people who entered Europe is less than 1% of the population of the European Union. Compared with the number of the people that you have in Turkey, I'm even not talking about Jordan and others, it's much smaller number. But the effect was the same. It pushed Europeans to discover and to see the world with different eyes. And what Europeans discovered is the following. They discovered simply that in the 21st century, migration is the new form of revolution. Because if you are living in a poor and badly governed country, and you want to change your life, it makes much more sense to change the country than to try to change the government. Your chances for radical change is much higher. When you realize... That the most radical change in their life that people can achieve is by changing the government, the country, not the government, mm. then European Union discovered itself as a counter revolutionary power. And secondly, what we discovered is that if before Europe was an idea, institutions, we discovered that European Union is a place. Mm. And by the way, place to be protected. Before the refugee crisis, the major question was how to transform our neighbors. After the refugee crisis, the question is how not to allow our neighbors to transform us.
1: In your book, uh, you you basically highlight that parts of Central and Eastern Europe have turned into a poster child of democratic illiberalism. How did that development then take on speed?
2: Politically, what is happening in many of these democracies is that for a period of 25 years, people had the feeling that they can change governments as much as they want, but they cannot change policies. If you know that you're a member of the European Union, and if you're really fed up with the fact that you always vote for the different party and you always get the same policy, Mm -hmm. uh, then you start to vote more and more inventively, let's put it like this, more and more creatively, more and more dangerously, because you're not very much afraid. The other problem was that... uh, For many people who wanted to change, the very idea of the rule of law started to have a slightly different meaning because many of these political leaders, Mr. Kaczynski has a theory uh, of political impossibilism, was telling them, listen, all these people are telling you that because of separation of powers, they cannot change anything. Give me the power. Give me the whole power and I'm going to give you a change that you're voting for. The only problem with this idea is that when you give so much power to somebody, you cannot be sure that he's going to return it to to you. Uh, But otherwise, I'm trying to explain why societies which basically start to work for change can go and do things. Uh, And this kind of a shift to majoritarian understanding is also part of this cultural shift and backlash I'm talking about. Uh, because if 68 was very much about individual rights and the rights of minorities, what we see, and I don't believe only in Central and Eastern Europe, is much more focus on the rights of majorities. Majorities also has rights. It's very much the centrality of the idea of way of life. So it's not that before there was no identity politics, and Mm. we have identity politics now. The problem is that before the identity politics was only kind of allowed to minorities, and now it became the the realm of majorities.
1: But if one follows that line of thought with regards to sort of the EU more or less than being the safety net below the new sort of, let's just call them, strong man in Central and Eastern Europe, whether it's now Orban or whether it's Kaczynski, it doesn't really matter. Then what should should the EU do then? Remove the safety net? Or, if again, if one reads the new German government, what they now suggest is then also have a linkage between the EU budget and countries that do not live up uh, to the various uh, democratic rules.
2: To be honest, I don't like very much the idea that you try to basically weaponize... transfer of money. My personal understanding is that paradoxically, what is happening in European Union is that we have four crises, each of which could have destabilized dramatically the Union, but overplay of this crisis stabilized the European Union for the last year. Uh, So from this point of view, strangely enough, all the crises are dividing European Union in very different groups. And it was this division that created political space which allowed the European Union basically to survive. And also what I do believe is important is that, again, to a certain extent, the United States and the United Kingdom helped very much to Europe to be consolidated. Mm-hmm. Because as a result of the elections of President Trump, something important happened not only on general level, but many of the populist parties that the previous year have been moving to the centre. They were having the feeling that their time is coming, so they were trying to get much more in the mainstream. But then President Trump basically uh, won running out of the center. So some of these parties, for example, when Marie Le Pen said that she wants to leave the euro, there is no single data that suggested that this is a popular idea. But she said that if she's not going to do something which is symbolically very radical... People were not going to follow her, but people didn't follow her because people were not there. Uh, and from this point of view, this radicalization of the populist parties led to the situation in which there was a moment and the initiative was taken. And here I do believe President Macron did something which was important for Europe. Uh, and this is that he was the first one that created a pro European populism. <laughs> uh, when people are saying that Macron is an anti populist candidate, it's not true, to be honest. Uh, but he, for the first time, managed to create the idea of change. Before, if you want change, you should be against the European Union. He basically merit the idea of change and the idea of European Union, and he has, this has a very important political consequences. You're taking the initiative. And by the way, policies is not only what people do. Policies is also how they justify their action. One and the same act is a different policy based on your explanation and justification why you're doing this.
1: Reading your book, you kind of have sort of the very much um, 2017 sort of uh, mood... Uh, that was a time where if you had been here a year ago, uh, before the book was written, uh, we would have discussed the domino effect of first you would have Wilders in the Netherlands after we had uh, Brexit-Trump, and then you had the election in, in France, and then you would have the election in Germany, and suddenly, well, the uh, disintegration trade would definitely have left the station as you sort of right in your book. Now you seem sort of to be arguing in a slightly more optimistic way. Was that what did you miss there? Was that the Donald Trump effect? As far as I could hear, that you were saying that he at least had an effect upon some of the parties.
2: To be honest, even then I was not. I never believed that uh, uh, Lupin is going to win or builders, mm. uh, but at the same time I believe that there is a major transformation of European politics which started. And I don't believe that the Macron is the end of the populist wave. I simply don't buy this. And it's not simply because of the Austrian elections. I do believe Italian elections are going to demonstrate it. And certainly also I don't believe that very understanding of how people understand uh, what is the populist wave. We managed to basically reduce the fear of populism to the rise of a certain parties. But if you see the agenda of some of these parties, you can see that we have the emergence of a new consensus on many issues, migration being one of them. Why I'm saying this? Because unlike many people who read this very much as the return to the 1930s, on this I'm not as pessimistic for many reasons, but three of them are important for me. first economic situation is very different than the 1930s. Mm-hmm. Uh, only people who never read history can compare the way people live now with the way they have been living after the Great Depression. Yeah. Secondly, 1930s, Europe was populated by ex-soldiers. All these people had been fighting. All these people knew how to shoot, and all these people had a very high tolerance for violence because of so-called, in, uh, in history, it's known as the brutality hypothesis. And thirdly, in 1930s, both the far left and the far right have been revolutionary forces. They have an idea of the future. Uh, If you see the communists and the fascists, they didn't like the people in the way they were. They had the idea how to remake them. It was a pedagogical project, but it was very much future oriented. Look now, the level of violence is very low compared to many things. And secondly, if you see to the populist parties, they don't have a pedagogical ambition. Just the opposite. The major uh, message is, I like you in the way you are. I don't want you to change. You're very stupid, I like you like this. Uh, 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 No, I'm saying this because in a certain way, this populism very much framed for the consumer age. Mm. And many of the populist parties treat their voters saying, listen, I'm your waiter. Just order me and I'm going to bring you what you want. So why I'm saying all this? Because I do believe, for me, the parallel which I'm going to use is much more with the 1970s. The idea was that the institutions are totally eroded, that a new adversary class is appearing, that the students and the young people don't share any more the values of the previous generation. And then, 20 years later, the anti-system radicals of the 1970s ended up as ministers. So, in a certain way, the biggest success of uh, Western democracies in the period of the 70s and 80s was de radicalization of certain generations, but at the same time, many of the issues that these people cared about entered the political realm women's rights, individual rights. So, there was a major cultural change, environmental issues. Now, you have this wave coming from the right. And this is very much about the rights of majority. It's about belonging. And the problem is, can the liberal democratic institutions, particularly when the European Union is much more integrated now than it was then, be able to socialize and de-radicalize some of these people in the way it did with the wave of the 68? Because probably some of the things that they are saying make sense. Obviously, borders is an issue. You cannot simply say we are for open borders, but you can also not close the borders simply because there is no in the world closed border. The only closed border is on the graveyard between this world and the other one. Uh, So from this point of view, obviously there is going to be something which would look as a political compromise, but how it looked? And are our institutions ready to do it? And what kind of institutions we are talking about? Because technology also is changing a lot. I was talking about the demographic fear, and demographic fears are very typical for Central Europe. But I do believe that the next crisis is going to come from the Western Europe. It's going to be about technological fears. Uh, uh, The United Kingdom uh, survey claims, the United Kingdom government, that in the next 30 years, 43% of all the existing jobs in the European Union are going to be automatized. Is it true or not? I don't know. But I'm giving you in order to get the scale. And what is interesting, most of this is going to be a white collar jobs. Personally, I believe that technology is a natural ally for democratic societies. And to be honest, I'm not sure anymore. So we're obviously facing a society about which we don't know much. And here is talking about my fears for the EU. I have one major fear of the EU. European Union started with a political project which was very much based on experimenting. This was the most courageous and brave experiment. After the war in which most of European societies basically were killing each other till yesterday, you're starting to create a political frame in which they're going to live together. If you're going to see with the eyes of the people that have been going out of the war, this was extremely courageous. Now I don't see a lot of appetite for risk-taking on the side of the European politicians. In order to be successful in this type of a period, you need a much more experimental understanding of what is going on. While what I'm seeing, basically, is very strong tendency, particularly on the level of the European institutions. Things work well. It's enough to continue doing what we're doing. We have now economic growth. And economic growth is going to be enough in order to re-legitimize the European Union. Here, I'm pessimistic. I don't believe economic growth is going to be enough. First, because we don't know for how long. Mm. Secondly, if the cultural anxiety is at the center, economic growth, particularly growth of 1-3% is not the one that can deal with this. Where I'm optimistic, I do believe that every kind of a revolution produces a certain type of a counter-revolution. But the counter-revolution mainly serves to legitimize some of the gains that cannot be reversed anymore probably for the european union more interesting question is to answer is why it didn't collapse for all these hundred years mm. so probably this is going to give us a better chance to understand because my is the capacity to survive is the major source of legitimacy and from this point of view, if we go through this crisis it's, it's in a better shape because people start to basically to take your existence as natural mm. this is what happened to the nation state Uh, If you see in our countries, in Central and Eastern Europe, how much we basically believe that the nation-state is the natural order of things. Have you asked yourself for how long most of East Europeans have been living in the nation-states of their own? For a very short period of time. But you have the feeling that this is the natural form of political existence. And this is why, for me, capacity to survival is so important. And Machiavelli has this beautiful quote... uh, I'm telling, not quoting, but he said for every ruler, even for a good prince, there are good time at bad times, And nobody can avoid and escape from the bad times. The problem is have you managed to accumulate enough of a positive sentiments during the good times in order to survive the bad times? And I don't believe European Union has a chance. And from this point of view yeah, probably I'm more optimistic than a year ago, but I'm not buying for a minute the idea that European crisis is simply over and uh, everything is over and now with Macron and with Merkel, the only thing that we should do is basically to forget. And also the world has changed a lot. And the change is much more deeper, even when probably there are going to be different presidents of the United States. The United States is not going to be back where it was. And China is not going to be back where it was. And is going to be back in the 1990s. Så so fra dette pointet er alt, som er gældet, Podcastserien
0: Europæiske Ideer er støttet af Statens Kunstfond, Politikkenfonden, Europa-nævnet og Augustinusfonden. Europæiske Ideer er også en bogserie udgivet på informationsforlag, og i serien kan du blandt andet finde Ivan Krastjevs bog Efter Europa. Bogen kan købes på butik- punktum information